Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Deuteronomy 31 tonight, picking up where we left off. Um, it says, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. Makes me think of when Bilbo announces he's 111 this year. He's 120 years old. I can no longer go out and come in. Um, so my first thought was, is this written then from his tent? Because he's not able to go out and come in. Uh, but that's not the case because in a few in a chapter he's going to go climb a mountain. So this is him. His not able to come out and go in has nothing to do with his physical mobility. It has to do with that he's not going to go in to the tabernacle and talk to God for the nation anymore. That that's getting to be a little bit much for him. So uh, we're in an addendum at the end of Deuteronomy of the covenant and the sealing and the blessings and the curses have all been taken care of, and this is kind of a complete kind of document. And at the end of the document, this is kind of a farewell piece. So again, just a quick review. Chapters 1 through 4 were the intro to Deuteronomy. 5 through 26 was the law. And then chapters 27 and 28 were the blessings and the curses. If they keep the law or they don't keep the law. And then chapter 29 and 30 was the renewal of the covenant, where they shouted amen. The people agreed to it and God agreed to it. And now they're in this covenant together. Um, and then we get this addendum here at the end. This chapter 31 is going to be about a transfer of power. So Moses is going to recede so Joshua can accede. And then in chapter 32, Moses is going to sing us a song. Uh, we'll get that to that tonight. Sadly, they've lost all the musical notes for it. Um, so we don't know the melody of the song. Chapter 33, Moses blesses all the tribes. And then chapter four, 34, which we'll get to next week, Moses dies. And for we've been with Moses for two and a half years now, and it'll be kind of an odd thing to see Moses kind of pass along and the whole narrative of the Bible moves on to Joshua. Um, verse 1, there's two verbs there, went and spoke. Uh, yalak is a, yidl, a literal walking or a procession. So when Moses went somewhere, it was a formal going of somewhere, like when you walk down the aisle, right? So when it says Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, it was a big affair, or kind of a, a, a moment or something that was happening is very intentional. Perhaps this was in front of the tabernacle. It says all Israel, and that's usually where they would meet in the middle of the camp. And he gives kind of his, uh, you know, kind of his birthday farewell speech. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Um, this as though they are, in, are within eyesight of it, because they are. They're camped right next to it. So he could point at the river and say, I'm not going to be able to cross that river. Uh, that's because in Numbers 20, if you remember way, way back when, uh, Moses was told to talk to the rock because that was going to be an image of Christ. All you had to do is talk to the rock and you would get your salvation. But he didn't do that. He, he yelled at it and then he hit it with his stick like it was Moses' power making it happen. And it messed up God's image and God 
uh, is then going to hold Moses accountable for that because leaders get held accountable. Verse 3, the Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you just as the Lord said. So don't worry, Moses is saying, it's all going to be good. Uh, you're going to possess the land. You're going to abide there. God's the leader, not Moses. And that's Moses' kind of final words is we're going to hand this up to God. Moses, therefore, and this is true of the kingdom of God. Moses is replaceable, but the love of God is not. And that it really doesn't matter which human gets stuck in that spot. God can take humans in and out and put them in that spot that will direct people to him. God's the leader, also not Joshua. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you. It's not Joshua doing any of this. It's God doing all of it. God comes first and the Lord gives Joshua the power that he's going to have. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, uh, the kings of the Amorites in their land, when he destroyed them. Uh, I like that Moses is pointing out that what's going to happen in the future has already happened in the past. You don't have to have a deep faith that God's capable of beating these people because he already has. So the Israelites have that historical example to stand on. And they're standing on the land that they won through those battles right now. So God gives this evidence, this demonstrative evidence to his people before he asks them to take the next step forward. In that sense, we have much more history that we can know the character and the will of God than they did. And they did the right thing. So we should be able to do the right thing too. Verse 5, Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. So Israel's going to be the instrument of doing. Uh, they're going to read God's word, then they're going to do God's word. God's going to show them what to do in each of these situations. Uh, and if they follow, the walls are going to fall down. And if they don't follow, things are not going to go well. And that's where we're headed in the book of Joshua. Every commandment means that they're going to have to continue to keep listening to the Lord through Joshua. Um, and most of these commandments that we just got done with in Deuteronomy are pretty avoidable. Like don't kill people. That's pretty avoidable in your day-to-day -day life. But the, the things they're going to have to focus on doing then, and I thought this was, if you just think about the law, what they need to focus on is the Sabbath and the holidays. So they're doing daily good morning and good evenings with God. They do a weekly Sabbath. They do a monthly get together with their larger community. They do annual festivals. Those are the things that God's people will focus on is let's plan our next get-together and our next gathering. And God's people just go through life planning the next get-together and then avoid the big nasty things that you should be able to avoid if you're living a godly life. God hasn't changed that much for his people. He still kind of asks that of his people. Just be content with what God's given us and move forward and plan the next joyful gathering with other believers that are following the Lord too and go through life just doing that. So faith then here is not this fluffy mustering of will, you know, like they have to build up their faith to get like, like you're building up courage. You have to convince yourself to do something. God's given them history. And then he says to be strong and of good courage. Do not fear or be afraid of them for the Lord, your God. He's the one who goes with you and he won't leave you or forsake you. You shouldn't have to muster faith. You just have to trust God and take the next step. And God's going to continue to be with you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So faith here for these people is God, Moses is telling them what to do. Faith is to simply listen to God's reason instead of listening to our own reason. And when God gives us reasons to do things, and he does, we've seen a lot of that, 
We're supposed to just do those things and to trust that God knows what he's talking about. That's the essence of faith. And it's the same as always. Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Quoting this verse in the Bible. So if you have food, you have a roof over your head, you have clothes on your back, the Lord's blessed you. You have what you need in this world. And that's hard to, when you live in, when we live in a first kind of economy, kind of wealthy nation that we're in right now, it's hard to imagine that how blessed we actually are. Um, but having those basic needs is what we need, and God doesn't forsake us in those areas. Then Moses called, the word called there means to summon or to call forth Joshua. Again, this is, connotes the finishing of the covenant as a very formal ceremony by the by the words they're picking here. So Moses summons forth Joshua, and he says to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage. This is an example of verse 6. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is a cool moment, and I love this part. This is one of my favorite chapters in Deuteronomy. Moses, who represents the law, who just gave us the rule book, is handing off everything to Joshua, who we're going to see represents the action of faith. And as much as Moses gave us the rules, Joshua gives us the example of how to go forward and how to do the rules. So even better, in case we as humanity were a little bit thick in the head and didn't quite get it. Joshua in the Hebrew is Yeshua. Jehovah is salvation. In the Greek, Jehovah is salvation is translated Jesus. So in case you didn't get the connection, Joshua is going to mirror the life of Christ at almost every step. And the things Joshua does by showing a righteous way to move forward is very similar to how Jesus does the same thing. In fact, of all the Old Testament characters, almost every one of them has a fatal sin or flaw as part of their narrative, except Joshua. He is kind of has he kind of has stepped away, like he stands out in that regard. There's no real record. That doesn't mean he's a sinless man. Clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but his sins aren't recorded in the Bible. So we get this image of this kind of thing. So in the Hebrew, it's Joshua. In the Greek, it's Jesus. It's the same name. Jehovah is salvation. And we start looking for that kind of imagery starting right now. Uh, Luke, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'll go there later. Um, so God goes before Jehovah is salvation. God will be with Jehovah is salvation. God will not leave or forsake Jehovah is salvation, even if it looks like it. So we start reading these, and every time you see the word Joshua, you can translate that, Jehovah is salvation. So also place this transition of power after the entire history of Israel that we just got done reading the last two weeks, where before the country's even a nation, God's given its entire history, which ends with this point where there's going to be a Messiah that shows up. And then he transitions and hands everything off to Joshua just like the history of Israel. They're going to have this entire history, and then the authority of God's going to get handed off to Jehovah is salvation. And that's why Messiah is such a big deal. It's a turning point. So as the law shows us sin, Jehovah's salvation is going to clearly and publicly show us a way forward despite the fact that we're sinners. 
and despite the fact that we're fallen. So Joshua's already been named as a successor back in Numbers 27 and back in Deuteronomy 1. So naming him again successor right now is kind of this moment when he's getting that transfer. But the whole nation already knew he was coming, just like we knew Jesus was coming before he actually shows up. So don't think that Jesus, uh, Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jehovah's salvation is going to finish what Moses started. Moses won't take them into the promised land. Jehovah's salvation will take them into the promised land. You see the connections? Like it's, it really reads fun when you start thinking of it like that. So there's a personal quality here of strength and courage. Um, Joshua is going to, you would think he gets told to be strong and courageous so much that maybe if we met Joshua, he's not that strong or courageous, which is why Moses and God keep telling him to be strong and courageous. He's been a helper his whole life. And he's been a helper for Moses. We saw him back when they were leaving Egypt. So for at least 40 years, he's been that kind of a person, not someone who pushes himself forward. He hasn't been part of the rebellions where they've tried to take over. He's that guy that's just faithfully served more at Moses behind the scenes, held up his arms, got his stuff, fetched his, you know, cherry Cokes, all those kinds of things. Joshua's just that guy. So when Moses says, be strong and courageous, it might be that that's the exact opposite of what Joshua's character is like, which is why God's bringing that out in him. Um, so I just like that we start to see that. We'll see a lot of that. Leadership for Moses then, if we look at a piece of Moses with these verses, when Moses calls Joshua forth, he's publicly handing things off to Joshua. Think of what that leadership style that is for Moses. That's somebody handing things off so that things go smoothly because Moses has seen lots of rebellion. So if you got to hand things off, do it publicly where everybody can see it. Second thing here is that what Moses gives Joshua in addition to that authority is he gives him encouragement. And we see that Moses in verse 7, you shall cause them, even though he hasn't done it yet. Moses is encouraging Joshua, saying, don't worry, Joshua, it's going to be good with you too. And you're going to lead this nation to its promised land. And just gives him that assurance and, 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 and confidence. And, I, and for those of us that have older mentors, that's one of the great joys of mentorship, is to have somebody older than you say, I know you can do it. And they're not doing it out of a place of like fluffy encouragement talk, but they know your character. They know you. You have a relationship with them. Moses has hung out with Joshua for 40 years. And for Moses to say that to Joshua, think what that stirs in Joshua's heart, what that does to him. So coming from Moses, the weight of the authority of Moses and God through Moses, he's going to get the experience the endurance, and he's going to get that ability to overcome things. And that assurance I, that assurance, also applies to us. We have the example of millions of Christians that have gone before us. They've been through it. They've experienced it, even to the point of death. So when you think of, I want to follow the Lord, and how do I follow the Lord? Think of the people that have gone before you, or that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12.1, right? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us, and let us run with the endurance the race that's set before us. That's exactly what Moses is doing for Joshua right now. He's getting him set up to run that race. I just think that's a wonderful moment. Verse 8 is God's example of leadership being defined in the following of the Lord. The Lord goes before Joshua. So Moses is giving him, I think, a great leadership advice that your worth and your value comes only from the degree to which you elevate and glorify God. 
the degree to which you elevate and, elevate and glorify yourself helps you out in reputation with the rest of the world, might help you out at work, but when it comes to kingdom stuff, the only degree to which we have any value is the degree to which we put God on a pedestal and we, and we, and we glorify him and, and point him out. And Moses is saying the same thing. You go with this people and he's telling Joshua to live and be humbly with the people, not over the people. Do you see the word with in there? I just, there's lots of little pieces here. And not forsaking people when they're in need. So verse 8 says, God goes before, he's in front. He is with, he's beside, and he won't leave us. He's going to cover the behind too. God goes in front of you, he's with you, and he's behind you. Um, do not fear, the, the word yare, we've seen that before. Fear is um, an imagined future that brings terror to your heart. That's fear. Fear is thinking of something that might happen in the future that you're scared of. Um, it is the opposite of faith. So when God says to have faith, there shouldn't be fear because whatever you're imagining might happen next, God's going to get you through that too. And so those two things are going to be things that we see Joshua struggling with. Do not be dismayed is the Hebrew word kathat. It is to be shattered or broken by an imagined history. So fear is an imagined future dismay is an imagined history that is that doesn't have God in it. So when we see the future or our history without God, we lend ourselves to fear or we lend ourselves to um, dismay or anxiety. Note, even Moses recognizes Jehovah is salvation as his successor. So this isn't his coronation. God's going to do that all by himself. Okay, let me... In verse 15, if you just look down a little bit, God's going to coronate Joshua. So that's not what Moses is doing right here. Moses is giving a very human transfer of power where everybody can see it. But God's going to actually intervene here and speak for himself. And God's going to anoint Joshua himself, just like God anoints Jesus at the baptism of John the Baptist. So we'll get into that. Verse 9. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and all the elders of Israel. Who can name what's in the Ark of the Covenant at this point? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Rod of Aaron. Rod of Aaron. Jar of manna. Jar of manna. That's a nice collection in that Ark. Box, we don't know how big exactly, something in this kind of territory with cedar and gold. It would get very heavy. So that's the Ark. It goes in the middle of the tabernacle, which is in the middle of the camp, which is in the middle of the nation of Israel, it goes this Ark of the Covenant, the covenant that we just got sealed in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 10, And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, that's Jubilee, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So, just imagine the history of Israel. They're supposed to read the entire law. So is the entire law just the Ten Commandments? No, the entire law is what we just concluded in the book of Deuteronomy. At the very least, they're reading chapters 6 all the way through 26 of Deuteronomy in one sitting. Right? So a huge Bible retreat every seven years. You're going to go, you're going to read the law. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who's in your gate, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. 
So you're going to, as a kid growing up, by the time you turn age of seven, you're going to have read the law at least once. By the time you turn 14, you're going to have read it at least two times out loud. And 14 is right around when you would have your bar mitzvah or your, that you have the total, you understand the law. So by the time you've read through the, the Torah twice, you should have a good understanding of it. You're considered an adult in Jewish society when you've read through the book twice. So at 14, every Jewish person should have actually heard it at one point. The list that they give in verse 12, no one's excluded from that list, not even non-Hebrews. Even people just living in their cities have to come down and hear the law get read. And that this is the law. Now, if we did that today, it would take years to read the entirety of just the Minnesota Code of Laws. Like our laws are out of control. They take up whole libraries. National laws are very similar too. So legal systems today, we can't get, we would never be able to sit and read through it all. Or if we did, it would be really tiresome. Studying of the word is given then the first priority for the priests. That's their obligation. It's a permanent duty and they're supposed to do it every seven years. They fail in this. As we get through the Old Testament, we only have a couple examples where they do this. And it's usually when the whole nation is repenting and there's revival going on that they start to read through the word. Throughout all of human history, every time there's a movement of the people of God where they just return to holiness and purity and start joyfully following the king, it starts with the reading of the word of, of God. It starts with the people getting together and going through the book for themselves. That's how that stuff happens. And we can look at kind of Christian history and we've seen that for 2000 years. You know, if somebody reads the book and says, wait, this isn't what the priests say we should be doing. And that starts a revival movement when suddenly you see that the traditions of humans have gone far enough away from what the Bible actually says that a group of people says, no, we're going to return to what it says and do it this way. And that changes people because it actually works. So remember the Feast of Tabernacles? Just a reminder on that too, because they're doing this. Everybody camps in little tents. It's a camp out. It's literally a Bible retreat that they're, that they're making them all do. So they all bring their camps uh, and they live little tents. I'm sure they pull it out of the garage, blow the dust off and go down. And there's this massive thing because they're supposed to remember what it was like in the wilderness when they didn't have big fancy houses. So every seven years, they're going to do this camp out. Even people like me had to do it and there weren't showers. So they just, it was just one week of camping. And I'm sure for kids, this was great. So you'd go do that. You had nothing else to do. They would shut off the TVs. They'd put away the cell phones and they would have this week where they'd begin camp, camping tents They'd go to the readings every day, and by the end of the week, they'd gotten through the whole book of the law, and they'd learned it all. Just a wonderful time. It was a reminder of where they came from, and a reminder that isn't one of dread, but one of the holiness and the gifts that God's given. Then they go back home, and they appreciate their house, because tents are horrible after a week. It's not comfortable, even though some of you really like camping. No offense. Verse 11, notice that it references the place. It doesn't say where yet. So that's one of the mysteries. God hasn't revealed that to the Jewish people yet as to where the temple is going to go. Uh, so it just says the place at this point. So Jesus says the temple is going to be um, spiritual in the new covenant. So the reading of the word, however, even with Jesus should still happen. So God never gets rid of the fact that the word should be read, this tradition that's supposed to happen. Um, what he does get rid of is saying that the temple has to be in Jerusalem and he moves the temple into each person's heart. So that's part of the new covenant. Verse 12 has gathering the people. I already kind of mentioned that includes everybody. 
Uh, the goal here is for people to hear it for themselves and not have other people translate it for them. This is the great danger of humanity. We get lazy and we think, oh, I just want to read my devotional every morning and have somebody else translate the law for me instead of just reading it and hearing it for yourself. And part of this having everybody show up and gather is that there's no filter. You're just reading what it says. And it moves a lot faster as doing it with expositional commentary. They're just reading through it, right? So we see that the goal then is for people to do it. We're going to see it in Joshua 8. They're going to do this for the first time. It's The next time we see it get done is in 500 years. So an amazing tradition that God hands to them, and they just don't do it because they're too busy. Things come up. Jehoshaphat does it. Josiah does it then 250 years later. And then in Nehemiah 8, we see it get done another time. So we only see it done four times in the Old Testament. And you'd think they would be excited to go camping every seven years, that this would be just a thing that they do all the time, but they don't. Verse 13 talks about the children who have known it, that they can hear and fear it. This is God's reasoning. God tells you why to do it. And the reason that you do it is so that you can learn it and that you can fear God and that you can go do the word. And he gives you the rationale for it. Um, so we don't abandon the next generation. We don't send them off to Sunday school to trust that that'll happen there. We take care of our own kids and we raise them ourselves and we read them the word of God. So every seven years means it's also on a Jubilee year. This is kind of cool because people that would be tempted to work because they've got so much debt they've got to pay off, it's Jubilee. You've got no excuses. Nobody owes anybody anything. And look at how this matches up with Jubilee. So we're going to get rid of all those other excuses you might have so that all you have to worry about is to start fresh with the word of God every seven years. So it's kind of a neat thing that those two things light up. No distractions. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Thanks, God. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I might inaugurate him. So God actually speaks up here in verse 14. God's going to take over the ceremony. Moses identifies his successor um, <laughs> before he dies. Uh, yeah, this is a really weird point. Totally not biblical. Just a geeky Sean thought. In Luke 2, when Jesus comes into the tabernacle, to the temple as a baby, there's an old guy named Simeon that comes up and says, this baby's the Messiah. Remember that story? And he kind of does this thing. And he says, um, and then he says, thank you, Lord. Now I can depart in peace because I've seen the Messiah. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Um, and, and what's interesting here is that Moses just got done saying, I've seen Jehovah is salvation into leadership. Now I can go and die. And verse 14 looks a lot like that. And okay, this is really weird, but Simeon is almost an anagram for Moses. So I think we're only one letter off there, yeah. right, engineers? Okay, so just a thought that we're going to see a lot of these correlations where Moses announces this person, but he's not the official announcer. God's going to be. So Moses and Jehovah is salvation went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. The law and the Jehovah is salvation present themselves to the tabernacle. And now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. This is God's Shekinah glory. It's a visible presence that the Jews reported. Two million Jews all saw this glory, and it's where the authority came from. 
So this is a lot more than Moses's blessing in verses seven and eight. This is God ordaining Joshua as the new leader. God shows his support because he's been presented and God acknowledges him. And that also happens <laughs> to be as a servant. So in Exodus 33:11, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. I don't know if you caught that back in Exodus, but Joshua didn't leave the tabernacle when he was a younger man. He just hung around there as long as he could. Does that sound familiar? To a little boy named Jesus, Jehoshaphat's salvation, who didn't leave the tabernacle after the Passover feast, it took his parents three days to figure out he was still in the, t- in the tabernacle teaching because he didn't leave, just like Joshua. So in Luke 29, 49, and he said to them, this Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? And likewise, Joshua is there doing work. So in verse 15, the Lord appears at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. God's not going to leave this transition to like Moses's authority because Moses' authority has been questioned over and over and over again. He's not going to leave it up to chance. He's going to make sure that the people of Israel know Joshua is the new guy because he just got him trained in under Moses. So he's going to make sure that it's very, very clear. In the same way, there's no doubt to the people seeking the Lord, who at this point are all out in the wilderness, kind of out by the Jordan River, kind of like John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, out by the Jordan River, and they were just coming into this place where they wanted to be pure. And for God's people, he made it super clear that the transition was going to happen between John the Baptist and Jesus. It goes like this, Luke 3, 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. He does the same thing at the transition away from the priesthood, the Mosaic priesthood and the believers circumcised in spirit and truth. The next time we're going to see that Shekinah glory pop upon people is in Acts 2 verse 2. God doesn't leave these major transitions to chance. He shows up at these moments in history. Acts 2.2 says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to be divided tongues of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they, the disciples, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's certain historical moments where God just shows up And this transition from Moses to Joshua is one of those moments. And the Shekinah glory shows up. It's this kind of fireworks and wonder that people see. And then it happens uh, throughout history. It happens when God's making a clear shift in authority and leadership from one covenant to another or from one leader to another. And that's what we see happening here. And then verse 16, and then Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, you will rest with your fathers. And this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land and where they go to be among them and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Remember they're in front of all the people and Moses is, the Lord is saying to Moses these things, but they're out in front of everyone with the Shekinah glory. Like, can you imagine being the nation of Israel and you're all excited to go in and God's like, yeah, these people are going to go be harlots and they're not going to follow me and whatever. And they're thinking in their heart, well, we're going to follow you, Lord. And the Lord's like, no, you're not. You're going to screw up and you're going to mess up. And I still love you. 
and we're going to still work with you, and we're going to, and I'm going to get glory because you're such idiots. Verse seven. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day. I will forsake them, and I'll hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. Many evils and troubles shall befall them. So they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they've done, in that they have turned to other gods. So it's another prediction that Israel's going to turn away. I remember being in a Bible class in college, and at one point we were kind of going through the survey of the Old Testament, and I just asked the question, isn't like the story of Israel like God's utter failure to lead people? Like I was a really young believer, and I was just trying to make sense of like, why would we have an entire book about how this nation fails? And as you get through this, the more you see that it's not a failure of God because he knows that humans are going to happen. It's a failure of humans. And it's a really kind of tricky thing to get your head around, but God doesn't force humans to do anything. And he never has. He doesn't work that way because that's not loving. And love is to let your children make their mistakes and then be there for them when they do. And that is what God's done because he sustains Israel through all history and he's promised us to sustain Israel until the end of days. So we see that prediction is there's going to be no surprises that happen. The rest of the Old Testament's not a surprise to God. He knew it was coming. They're going to give it, they're going to go into their own law. They're not going to follow God's. Chapter 23, um, we see all the um, priest failings are going to happen. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus outlines all the priest's failings and how the priests have screwed up and they're not staying true to what Moses said to them. And then he says this, see, your house has left you desolate. And he uses the same desolate word here that we see in this passage. Um, that, that when God hides his face, what's left is desolation. It's not that God's causing the desolation. It's that when God removes his hand, bad things happen. It's like when you hold an egg in your hand. When you remove your hand, the egg's got problems and it's going to be bad for the egg. But it's not that God went and destroyed the egg. It's that God just removed his hand and that God sustains people and holds people together. If you still have breath in your lungs today, God must have something he wants you to do today because he's sustained you. He's kept you here. He can take you home at any time in any way. Um, and we see that all the time. We see people get caught by surprise and there's a car accident and they're just gone. Um, but Israel's going to know that it's coming and God's going to, when they sin, he's going to remove his hand. Things will go bad for them. Verse 19, now therefore write down this song for yourselves. Teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. In verse 19, it says the word therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? And you got to just go back to six, verses 16 through 18. When life gets bad, you're going to sing this song. And Moses is setting them up for this kind of very, again, preschool-like mentality. When it gets dark, you just need to sing this little song to yourself. And remember that God will never totally take away his hand. You might be an egg falling and the ground might be coming up quickly, but God's never going to let you fall completely. He's always going to take that as a moment to train you. So you're going to sing this song, which we're going to get in the next chapter. When I've brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they've eaten and filled themselves and grown fat and chunky. I added the chunky. 
then they will turn to other gods and serve them and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I've brought them into the land, which I swore to them. Therefore, Moses wrote this song the same day and he taught it to the children of Israel. So <laughs> I remember when my grandma would lead Christmas events and she would gather everybody in a room because she had something that she wanted to do. And it was precious because she's grandma and everybody just listens to grandma. So when grandma says, here's how we're going to hand out the presents, you just do it. And I have to imagine that the nation of Israel felt this way about Moses. He's Moses. So if he wants you to learn a song, everybody's just kind of begrudgingly singing the song but it's going to be catchy enough to where the kids are going to sing it. And even when things are going bad and the adults lose their focus, the kids are going to keep singing this little song and the parents are going to hear it being sung so that they know that the response to hard times is to turn to God. And he's going to make it into a kid's song so they don't forget it. I just love this. So, and the song's going to be all about how they're going to screw up. <laughs> so it's going to, the song's going to be the entire history of Israel in a nice condensed thing. Actually, the song's going to be, you could read it as a survey of the entire Bible in one chapter from beginning to end before any of it starts to happen. God's going to put that into the mouths of babes so that they're singing this little song. This is why I wish at some point in heaven, I want to know what it sounds like. Because if it's that catchy that kids go sing it in the playground, you know, there's things I sung in the playground that I don't think will make it into heaven. But this song would, and this song I think will still be there. So in verse 21, when things go bad, they're still going to hear this song being sung because it's a witness. It's a memory of what happened and that God said this at one point. Verse 22 says, therefore, Moses wrote the song. He, God tells them to write a national anthem so that they remember it. Moses writes it down to help them remember the words so they can teach it. And he does it the same day, which means it's an inspired song. And those people that write songs now and then, you ever have that where you just wake up and the song's like written and you just write it down as quick as you can because God just put it there for you? So a strong inclination that God kind of wrote this and just gave it to Moses and he wrote it down as quick as he could. Verse 23 says, Then he, capital H, God, inaugurates jo Joshua the son of Nun, and he said, Be strong and, and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So we get a second inauguration of Joshua. This time, God himself does the speaking, and he makes the same promise that Moses did. Just reiterates that same thing, which must really be helping Joshua out here to step up. So God brings them in. Joshua does it. God's going to work through Joshua too. This is prophetically true of Jesus, who is God. So you could read this verse 23 in terms of Jesus too. Then he inaugurated Jehovah's salvation and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore them, and I will be with you. Same exact sentence would be prophetic of what God's going to assure Jesus of too. Um, it says, where's the, it says, be strong and of good courage. Again, that implies that he's not at this point. There's a verb that has to happen in the middle. So at this point, he's not strong and of good courage, but he has to be that way. He has to grow into that role. Um, I like that what Guzik says, that Joshua is small enough to be big in God. That to be a, to be a big person in God's kingdom, you've got to have a deep humility and know exactly how little you are 
before God started to do something with your life. And I think that's one of the blessed parts about being with other people in the kingdom is they'll come in and, and some of them come in and they're all puffed up and you know they got some, God's got to do a work on them. And other people come in and they just, they're broken. They know that there's not much here to offer and what an honor it is to be able to be with the people of God and study his word. And you just think, who am I to even have the privilege of reading what the God of the universe wants to say to me? And you come to God's word with that humble attitude. God can work with that. That's a moldable clay or what the Bible calls a soft heart. And that God can take that and do something. So then he inaugurates Joshua the son of Nun and says, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. The command is to be strong and of good courage, because Joshua is likely terrified. The promise is that God will be with them because God is most likely capable. And that he doesn't have to worry about being capable. He just has to worry about being humble. And then you shall is God giving that same encouragement. So Joshua is going to be told to be strong and of good courage exactly seven times in the Bible. So for those of us that like numbers, seven would be the, the number of perfection or completeness. Um, it's in Deuteronomy 31, 6, 7, 23. And in Joshua 1, 6, 7, 9, and 18. So two groups of three and then a single one off to the side. So complete, complete, perfectly complete. Just so you know, there's balance and symmetry in the Bible too. Then Joshua actually uses it. So in Joshua 10, 25, Joshua starts to encourage other people with the exact same words, be strong and of good courage. Sometimes when God trains us, we have to have the same lesson like upwards of seven times before we get it, that the encouragement we get from God is what the Holy Spirit's putting in us to give to other people. And Joshua models that for us. And I just think it's wonderful. All right. Do, 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 do. Another parallel to Jesus, and then we'll move on to the next verse, because I just keep saying these. You shall bring the children of Israel into the land. Um, in John 14, 2, listen to this. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I, would I not have told you? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself that where I am, that you may be also. Jesus is going to bring us into heaven in the same way Joshua brings Israel into the promised land. Actually, they're both promised lands, right? So they're both going to do that. I will be with you, John 16, 32. And, I, and, and, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Verse 24 back in our chapter. So it was when Moses had completing writing the words when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book when they were finished. So Moses is all done and in verse 24 we're done with the the writings of Moses and that he put them there. Um, this is another clue verse 24 that Joshua's doing all the addendums because he's talking about Moses almost in the third person here. And so Moses is being faithful even at the end as he's taking over, he's still finishing Moses's work. So that transition and that servanthood of Joshua is there too. There's an honor and respect for Moses that goes very deep because they're writing down the song he taught them before he went off to die. Like they adore and respect what Moses is doing and what he's saying. In part because there's a Shekinah glory over the temple and God's actually speaking and they can hear it. Um, but in part because Moses has loved and cared for these people for 40 years got them out of slavery and brought them to a place where they're going to have their own nation. So the Levites are going to maintain this word in verse 24, the words of the law. They're going to retain this word for 1500 years. 
Um, and it's kind of cool because I don't know if you know, but just a few, like a month or so ago, they went into a new cave in the Dead Sea region that they couldn't get to before. And they had found a bunch of dead bodies in the cave, but they went through and they're digging through and they found more manuscripts and they found passages from Nehemiah and what was the other one? And Nahum, both of which saying like God's going to bring judgment on the world. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Those records in verse 24 that are meant to be kept, get kept by the Mosaic priesthood for 1500 years in nearly perfect form. And so we see this tradition because God's spoken it, they're going to do it. So the tablets of the Ten Commandments are in the ark. The words of the law of the book are going to go next to the ark and they're going to get stored and they're going to be transported with the ark of the covenant. Verse 25, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying, Take this book of the law, put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. I like that it's against you. Like, it could be a witness for you. No, it's a witness because they're going to do the wrong thing, and these books are going to have a record that says you're going to do the wrong thing so that they can return to the Lord because they know the Lord saw this coming in the first place. So the law needs one other witness to prosecute. Uh, they're under the law, so the law is one witness. And the second witness against them is going to be this song that he's going to teach them. So they're going to have a verbal history that's a witness against them. And they're going to have the law itself that's a witness against them. That's two witnesses. And then the prophets there too. So Matthew 23, 31 says, therefore you are witnesses against yourselves. <laughs> so Matthew, I think, has a snarky little line in there where another witness against the Jews are the Jews themselves uh, in the words that come out of their mouth. Verse 27 for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? You guys are screwing up right now. What's going to happen when Moses is dead? Oh, you're just going to keep screwing up. It's going to get even worse. Human societies tend to degenerate or decline over time. And all of human history shows this. Nations will rise under kind of a purist ideal or a work ethic, and then as they get wealthy, they devolve and they become decimated until the next society comes in and takes over and dominates the world. So we see that again and again. And the Jews are not going to be any different than that. They're going to start with this ideal. They're going to rise in power all the way up to Solomon. And with power and money and wealth, they get fat. And then they, their morals start to decline and the whole society starts to decline with them. So that's going to happen. Verse 28, gather to me all the elders of your tribes and all your officers then I might speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Now we get more witnesses, heaven and earth. Actually, all of creation is a witness. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way that I've commanded. You and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. This is really cheery stuff. But it's pretty serious too, right? Moses is kind of saying this is what's going to happen. The failing of the priests is known from the beginning of the law before the priests even take over really and start being the proctors of the law. So God anoints these believers after Jesus. So the law gets given under Moses. He hands it off. Joshua takes them in for all these successes. Um, Jesus is going to take his believers for a bunch of successes too. As the Mosaic priesthood turns the law into this onerous burden on the people, like it's not fun anymore, it's just punitive. Um, Jesus is going to show them that there is a 
law that is the spirit of the law that means as much as the invented law of the scribes and Pharisees. And that spiritual power is still going to be there, and God's going to appoint believers to carry that forward and move that forward into history. Acts 5.12 And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits until they were all healed. The idea of the law is to bring about that kind of an environment, that God's power is going to move through people that seek purity. And that's what the disciples figured out under the teaching of Jesus. He teaches them how to move forward and how to conquer new territory. And then they start to do it. So the Song of Moses that's coming up next is referenced here in the last piece. Verse 30 actually kind of goes with the next chapter. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. And here is the song. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So now we move in. Chapter 22 is the song of Moses uh, with no melody. Sorry about that. Uh, Joshua and Moses get this from God himself in the tabernacle. Back in verse 21, that's the source of this song. It's a law giver and a law doer that are the dual witnesses for this song. And they teach it to the civic leaders from verse 28. Um, and they and the songs aren't going to get a lot of commentary. A song should really speak for itself. But I am going to stop every paragraph or so and just kind of point out what era of history it is. Because one way to look at this song is that it's the summary of the entire Bible. And it starts in Genesis 1-1 with, Give ear, O heavens, that I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis you know, 1. So we start to see these kind of, kind of, poetic references to different parts of the Bible. So verse one, like, is an attention line. Verse two, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as rain drops on the tender herb and showers on the grass. Um, you know, perhaps referencing the flood of Noah. For I proclaim or publish to call out something, the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, for he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So he is just, he is true, he is righteous. And we see the word rock here. Uh, the word rock is going to get used six times, so you could call this the first rock song. Yeah? All right. It's going to be there. Do take note of when rock has a capital R and when rock has a little r. Um, and they'll refer to different kinds of rocks in our life and in that we worship different things. Not all of them are worthy. Christ is the rock of our salvation. His word is our rock throughout the Bible. Um, and we can build our life on that rock throughout the Bible. So when we see the use of the rock here, that's going to get used through the rest of the Bible. Luke 6:48 says, He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, you could not shake it because it was founded on the rock. 
so we get this idea that God is a rock. He's worth giving our life to. Um, and we don't do anything. We study and learn the word. We fear God and he works in our lives. And that's kind of it. That's what we do. And that's what brings us to our fulfillment as a created being. Um, I think it'd be kind of a cool movie plot. Have you ever seen the movie like where Jim Carrey can never say no? Like there's some way that he magically always has to say yes to things. It creates kind of an interesting movie plot. I think a cool movie plot would be for some reason or another, the only thing that can come out of your mouth is something God has said in the Bible. So in every situation you have to say, well, God says blah, 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 blah to people. And I think it'd be a great movie plot because that would get you in so much trouble. So just a thought, wanted to say that. I don't know why I put that in there. Let's keep going with the song. Verse five, and they have corrupted themselves. They're not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Moses is a witness that corruption comes not from outside of us, but corruption comes from inside of us. And they consider their foolishness. Moses' advice when they hear this song is to remember what God's done for them. Hasn't God done these things for you? Hasn't God made you? Hasn't he established you? So when we're foolish and doing dumb things, we're supposed to remember the flood, the table of nations. Remember the days of old, verse 7. Consider the years of many generations. This is in the book of Genesis. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, when he set the boundaries of his people according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Okay, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. Zach and Alyssa might be the only people that remember this. When God divided up the world, he made 70 nations in the world. And for each of those nations, he had one original Hebrew represent. So when the family came to meet um, Joseph in Egypt, the family came with, 66 people. And then Joseph had four people in his family amounting to 70 original people that started in Egypt. And the design of that was that for each of the 70 nations, there was one Hebrew person. Do you remember that or is this just too long ago? Okay, sorry. I haven't repeated it enough. So Israel is set aside way back then. Now I want to go back and listen to the tapes to see if I actually brought that up. Um, but the Hebrew is a representative portion of the entire world. And the Hebrew nation was meant to be that representative portion. So when it says he set the boundaries of his people according to the number of the children of Israel, the number is 70. And we know that from Genesis. And that when he set out the table of nations, there were 70 nations. This is why Canaan was set aside for the Israelites. This is why it was their promised land that God gave to them is that it was set apart for those people. And that was where they were to go when they came back from Egypt. So Israel was set aside way back then, just like the Levites are set aside to represent the rest of the nation of Israel. So verses 10 through 38 are going to recount the ups and downs of Israel before they're even a nation. He found them in a desert land and in a wasteland, Exodus, howling wilderness, he encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, Leviticus. And he, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings and taking them up, 
carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led them, and there was no foreign God with them. Exodus, Numbers. This brings up Deuteronomy. This is where we're at in, in the history of the country. Verse 13, he made them ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made them draw honey from the rock, oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, milk of the flock with the fat of the lambs, and the rams and the breed of Bashan and the goats with the choicest wheat, and you drink wine, the blood of the grapes. God loves them. He turns the wasteland into prosperity. He's going to guard them, teach them, keep them. He's going to let them fall. He's going to let them fly. And he uses this image of an eagle to do that. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, verse 15. <laughs> now we get the bad stuff. So, and again, remember 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, Now these things became our examples to the intent is that we should not lust after the evil things as they, the Israelites, lusted too. So we get all these narratives for our benefit, and Israel's going to go through the struggles to make those stories happen. So the only other spot where we see the use of Jeshurun, uh, it means in the Hebrew, the upright one. It is a reference to Israel as a nation in its upright or in its good state. The best that Israel can be is Jeshurun. And it gets used here in Deuteronomy. It only gets one, in one spot outside of Deuteronomy, and that's Isaiah 44, 2. Two, it says, um, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is the name for Israel as the chosen of God, the ones he picked. It's a sweet name. It's like having a pet name for your, for your child that you adore, right? The truth is Israel's fallen, but God still adores them. But Jeshurun, the precious, got fat and kicked, verse 15. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. It literally means you're covered with fatness. In the Hebrew, shaman is to wax or make something very fat. Israel's idolatry is just going to hang on them uh, like extra packaging does around my waist. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully, uh, this word scornfully there means lightly esteem, to just not take something seriously is to scorn something to esteem the rock of his salvation. So then they're going to forsake God who made him and lightly esteem the rock of God's salvation, or sure Yeshua is the word, the rock of salvation. To treat God's gifts as light is to mock him or to scorn him. Then verse 16, they provoked him, God, to jealousy with foreign gods. With abomination, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. This is a long song. At this point, I'm thinking the Hebrews have to have really good memories to memorize this whole song. This is like American pie. This is a, this is a lot of words to memorize. So the heart is more than a loss of even just these things, these shadow gods that they're going to follow is just heartbreaking to God. Verse 18, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. You've forgotten the God who fathered you. Almost like there's two personalities there. A rock that's going to save them and a God who is watching over them. And then the Lord saw it and he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face for them. I will see what their end will be for they're a perverse generation. Children in whom there is no faith. They've provoked me to jealousy by what God is, by what is not God. 
and they've moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. So the impact of God hiding his faiths is not only desolation that we saw before, it's also faithlessness. When we don't see God in our lives, when we don't recognize what God's doing, you tend to just follow things, verse 21, that are not God. You go after things that aren't God because they seem to be more real to you than God is. So God's intentionally going to take the foolish folks, and this is a really interesting verse, the end of verse 21. He's going to take the foolish and he's going to make them something special that's so special the Jewish people will be jealous of them. He's going to take the foolish things of this world and he's going to make them pretty impressive. And God's blessing is going to go on those foolish people, like us, non-Jewish people. Paul quotes this passage from Deuteronomy along with a bunch of other Old Testament citations. Like at this point in Romans, he's just quoting things like a reference, like a lit review. Um, and he's making a point. Romans 10, 19 um, is kind of this whole passage where he's making this point that they're going to be, there's going to be a group of people who aren't a nation that are going to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And he makes that point too. And then he says in Romans 11:5, even so then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. So Israel is never going to get this joy that they were looking for because God's hiding his face from them. But then there's going to be the elect, these Christians, they weren't calling them Christians yet, that are, that are going to figure it out and they're going to get all the joys and blessings of God. I say then, Romans 11, 11, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, Israel's fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation comes to the Gentiles. This is the conclusion of what this is. The joy of the Lord follows the Christian Gentiles to show God's Israel what joy really looks like. So when we sit around and sing songs, and we, when we have get-togethers, and we eat food, and we celebrate together, and we pray together, we're doing all the things God wanted Israel to be doing. And if Israel has any wisdom at all, they look at that and go, why don't we get any of that? Why do the Christians get all the good rock songs? right? And how come the Jews don't? And it should be a question that they're asking. Why is the abundance of joy and the fruitful of even creativity and art and architecture and song and dance, why is that just flooding on the Christian Gentile world and it's not necessarily with Israel? And it should make them, it should provoke them to jealousy. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. So God takes the fools, that's not a good thing anywhere in the Bible, a fool is a bad thing, takes the bad things and he makes them his own, he redeems them and he makes them something special and he turns them into his church. And they're not a nation, just like the song says. There's nothing national about them. Titus 3.3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living with malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by the works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy and he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. They don't even know it yet, but this is all part of the plan. So Paul uses these verses from the Song of Moses 
to point out that, hey, we're at this point in history now. This just happened. So in the same way that Jews can kind of see where they're at from Genesis, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then go, we're right about here in the song, the whole history of the world gets played out. And Paul does the same thing in the book of Romans and says, we're kind of right here right now. We're provoking the Jews to jealousy because we got what they should have. God's given us the inheritance. And that's got to burn a little bit, or it should, because, verse 22, for, my, for a fire is kindled in my anger, and it shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. So God's going to bring some judgment to the planet. I will heap disasters on them, and I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction, and I will send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside, and there shall be terror within. For the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs, I would have said I will dash them to pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high and, and it is not the Lord who has done this. So the only reason he's not going to destroy Israel is because the rest of the world would, would not respect the power of God. Because of this covenant that he's just made with them, he's going to hold on to them and he's going to show the world what protection and love looks like even as he disciplines his children. Like, I don't want to be disciplined by God because none of that sounds like good stuff to go through. So I'd rather just choose God in the first place. But there's always going to be a remnant around that can sing this song from this chapter. God's going to discipline them, but the enemies are never going to get the privilege of thinking that they beat God by beating Israel. That's never going to happen. So I hope you're all feeling really good about being foolish Gentiles at this point. Because we don't get this history that the Jewish people get. For they're a nation, verse 28. A nation there is the word goe. It's typically the word for a non-Hebrew. So when it says, for they are a nation void of counsel, it's talking about the rest of the world. Uh, in fact, goe literally means a swarm of locusts. So we're not talking about Israel there. We're talking about non-Israeli people in verse 28. Nor are there any understanding among them. You look at the nations of the world today and one has to wonder where the understanding is. We're just There's a lot of craziness out there. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider the latter end. How could one chase a thousand and put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock, small r, is not like our rock, big R. Even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are the grapes of Gaul. Uh, another way to translate it is the grapes of wrath, where we get the book. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. All of this is very colorful language for the idea that the entire world will hate the Lord at some point. The end of the disobedient nations is not going to be a good outcome um, because the rocks are different. They're worshiping other things. Verses 29, verses 30, the Gentiles are going to wonder and awe at Israel. And the end of those nations is an evil worthy of consideration. And we should teach our kids to sing this song. I just think this is the oddest thing. Like if my kid was singing this, if you've ever heard the song um, Ring Around the Rosie, Pocket Full of Posies, Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down, it's in reference to the Black Plague. I mean, it's a kid's song, 
But if you think about how dark that song is, in fact, if you look at a lot of nursery tales, the original writing of them, a lot of what we teach kids is some really dark stuff because kids just see right over it. And it's when they become adults, they realize, oh, I shouldn't go out. You know, maybe that was a bad thing to go out in the woods at night because bad things happen when kids go off into the woods by themselves. So this is not a, a, a happy-go-lucky. This is not a Barney song. This is one of those kind of ring around the rosy songs that you're going to have kids singing. They're going to be haunting uh, when you hear kids singing these kinds of things when the bad times come. Verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up amongst my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come will hasten upon them. For God, at hand means at least 3,500 years. So time for God's not the same as time for humans. But the idea is when the nations of the world who serve other rocks, verse 31, are all against God and the whole world becomes disobedient to God, Sodom and Gomorrah style. The whole world looks like that. Vengeance is mine, verse 35, God's going to take it up. In other words, as Christians and as Israel, they don't have to worry about vengeance because God's taken that for himself. He'll do the vengeance. He doesn't want us to be doing that. So there's no mention of how long this season will last. The language here that's employed gets used in all the prophetic books. So this is the beginning of that language that we'll see in the prophets. Israel at this point in history by verse 34 has no autonomy. They have no power. They have no say-so. That's when God shows up. Verse 36, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's no one remaining bond or free. And he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, small r note, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and the drank the wine of their offering. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. So God's going to take his hand off the world. It's going to go to hell. I think that's appropriate to say. It's not going to be a good place. And God's going to sit back and go, why don't you get all your fancy stuff to fix it? You said you were so awesome without me. So where's all your awesomeness when you're fighting each other and there's plagues and pestilence and famine? Maybe the hand of God is something that's desirable. So go, go ahead, go after everything you think you can do to fix this world and see where that lands you. And then when you have need, the goal is that you'll still hear this song and return to the Lord because there's always a remnant. So most of the prophets take these passages and relate it to the end of times. There will be a judgment that's coming. The point is to have compassion. God's going to judge, but it's always on behalf of the weak and the unjust. When humans judge, it's usually in behalf of whoever's right under the law. But when God judges, it's on behalf of the weak and those that have been downtrodden. It's an interesting kind of thought. So where are their gods? The reality is that there, there aren't any. It's false marketing. That stuff the world says is going to do so much good just doesn't. It doesn't end up ever coming through, never delivers. Verse 39, now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. This looks just like Genesis. Three references, I, I, he. God refers to himself in three parties three persons. So in verse 39, we see an example of that. There's a God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. And there is no God singular besides me. This is the recognition is the, 
This recognition, recognition in verse 39 is the first step of renewal that God is the greatest and there is no one beside him. What does it take for humanity to come to that point? I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. And now we get to verse 40. For I raise my hand to heaven. God, obviously, God doesn't have a physical hand, so this is an anthropomorphic uh, form to say that he's vowing something. He's raising his hand. And I say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render my vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. This gets repeated in Isaiah 63. This is the second coming of the Messiah. Messiah is going to come and he's going to make things right. He's going to set it, set things justly. Verse 42, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Um, you can see where Paul in the book of Romans, he loves this passage because he's looking at what comes next because he just saw the Messiah come who's going to live forever because he just rose from the dead. So when we see that passage there in verse 40, I live forever, Paul's recognizing that's the Messiah who's going to return. And he explains that in Romans and tries to unpack that. Verse 43 says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. God's going to create a way then for Gentiles to rejoice to take on joy once again. And the way is that he's going to provide atonement. It's interesting that when God does vengeance, then the good people of the world in verse 43 are going to rejoice. And that seems kind of hard for us sometimes. We don't live in that kind of a world or society. It's not what we were taught in first grade. But there is a point when God does perfect justice, he's not accusing people falsely. Like when he takes somebody out, he's taking out somebody who that's actually a pretty evil person. And when he does it, it's going to be something where good people say, that's kind of nice that we don't have to worry about that evil person anymore. So I think it goes to like every action movie ever made, right? The fantasy is when we know someone is horrible and evil and hurting people and doing the bad things, which you get at the beginning of the action movie, then the hero steps up and fixes it and makes it right. And in most action movies, the bad guy gets theirs at the end. And it's never pretty, and there's usually a power line at the end, right, that makes a little bit of humor. And if Arnold Schwarzenegger does it, it's even more humorous. But that's the whole point of an action movie, is that the bad guys get justice. And a lot of action movies, is they get justice despite the fact that the law isn't able to do it. And the hero has to even go outside the law and God never wants us to go outside the law. And that's why he says, vengeance is mine. Because God is the law. And he's the law perfectly administered. And the bad guys get theirs. And that, well, there's a lot of news this week about child trafficking. Wouldn't you like to round up those scumbags and see them get theirs? I mean, honestly, it's not our job to do. We should put them in a jail. God's going to actually end them in a way that we're going to be like, yes. When bad guys get what they got coming, Good people celebrate and rejoice, verse 43. We don't hesitate at that. Like these are people that have made choices that are horrible and evil. And they've sought after things that are corrupt and vile. 
And that's a point where good people say, yeah, we're done with these people, enough with them trying to tell us how to do things. They thought they had everything, their little small r rocks are worthless, and the God of the universe is worth everything. And we wanna see those scales balanced once again. God's gonna provide his atonement, verse 43, just like God provided the sacrifice in Genesis 22 um, with Isaac and Jacob, right? God's gonna step in and he's gonna just provide that sacrifice, or Abraham and Isaac. So there's a realization that God's atonement is gonna be the only atonement at the end of time, verse 43. At the end of days, everyone on the planet, both good and bad, is going to realize the only way to heaven is through God's provided atonement for our sins, or Jesus Christ. If, we, if we're honest with ourselves, and we have a, those quiet, truth-filled moments with ourselves, we realize we're not holy. Like, that at our very base, we just kind of want to serve ourselves. But there's going to be a point when we see God's action at the end of times, we'll realize that the only thing we have to hang on to is the salvation and atonement that Christ gives. That that's it. That's all we have. And there's nothing else we can do to build up our own self. We have to just fall on God and trust us because holiness is just past what we can do with ourselves. We can try, like dutifully, like make a to-do list and try to be holy and do it all the time. But if you're really honest with it, yourself, you know it's never quite within reach. So at some point, you got to let go of that and just trust God or let go and let God, right, in the, from the 70s. One thought that helps me with that, I think, is that when we struggle with sin in our lives, we just say, you know what, purity is worth more to it than, than, than that. So I'd rather seek after purity than myself because purity is just greater than sin. And we just kind of keep that equation at the front of our head. The only way to get purity then is that atonement, verse 43, that God provides for us. That's it. So God wants the greatest number of people possible. And he's going to wait as long as he can before that happens because he wants the greatest number of people possible to understand that and to come into the kingdom with him. So he's going to wait and prolong that last thing. So that's the Song of Moses. We'll wrap up the chapter with two other paragraphs. So Moses came with Joshua, Jehovah's salvation, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful and observe all the words of this law, for it's not a futile thing for you, because it's your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess." Uh, Moses repeats his point. We've heard that a lot, right? Here we just get added that phrase of it's not a futile thing. To struggle with sin and think purity is greater than sin, and I'm going to struggle for that, it's actually not a futile thing. And I just like that wording in, in verse 47. It's worth your time to fight sin. Even if you lose a lot, it's still worth it. And it's worth taking on that challenge and going after it. God's blessings are spiritual so they can be quiet blessings, just like God does quiet miracles. But it's worth it, and there's a, it's not a futile activity. They're real, they're known, they're fruitful. And for anybody that walks with the Lord, you're like, this is so worth it. And then you backslide, go back to where you were walking with the Lord and pick up from where you left off and just keep making that journey. You get out of your walk in faith what you put into it. Morning and evening devotions, weekly Bible study, monthly fellowship gatherings, 
yearly celebrations and festivals, book of Leviticus. He's told us what to do. Fight sin. Verse 48, then the Lord spoke to Moses the very same day, saying, go up this mountain, Abarim, which means regions beyond, Mount Nebo, which means prophet, so he's got to go finding Nebo, um, which is the land of Moab across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. So it was such a good song, God's going to tell him to go die. I don't know, that's my morbid humor. I just thought, ouch, like you write a song for the first time in your life, and God says, okay, now it's time, you're done. Get off the stage. And die on the mountain which you ascend, verse 50. And be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to the, his people. Because you, uh, that's a plural you, by the way, you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. Numbers chapter 20 is where that comes from. In the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there in the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. Fair enough. God keeps his promises. He gathers Moses to the, to the people, the law. Um, and he gathers them is a, a phrase for dying. It's interesting because the Bible uses both. It says this person died, but for Moses, he, he's gathered to his people. For Moses, it's not death. And I don't know if you picked that up, but for Aaron, it wasn't either. It was a gathering unto his people. And if you're ever at a funeral and they start talking about death, if that person was a believer, they didn't die. They were gathered to their people. And God mentions Aaron, like, you're not going to be alone, Moses. Your brother's going to be waiting for you when this happens. So as we see the history of the world in the song, then we get to this transition where Moses, the law is just going to die. Because once everybody's realized the atonement of God, the law can just go away. And Paul talks about this too, that in Christians, like, yes, we follow the law, but we're seeking so much more than just checking off the boxes. We're really seeking purity and relationship with God. We're not just seeking holiness. We want to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ more so than we want to do anything else. And following law is just a, like part of that journey, right? But Moses is going to pass because Jehovah's salvation is about to take over. So one, one of them's got to go. So God takes him up there and does that. A couple like really cool thoughts about this. And Moses is, hasn't actually made the journey yet. He's just being told by God to go do it. 52, it says, yet you shall see. So God blesses him. Even in his failure and death, he trespassed. That's one of his two sins. He defied God's word. And he did not hallow or he failed to do it, right? And that's verse 51. So he has two sins. He trespassed and he didn't hallow God's name. And even with those sins, he's still going to get to see the promised land. Um, and God's going to give him one absolutely stunning view of the Megiddo Valley. Or, or as you cross the Jordan, he's going to be able to see into or over the lower mountain ranges into Israel. And he's going to see this beautiful land. So he gets that view. As Moses is a leader of his people in that failure that he did in front of the people, if he went trompsing into the Holy Land, think of the example that sets. Everybody in Israel says, well, Moses didn't follow God's word. Why should we? But if Moses is held accountable right now at this moment in history, think of what that says to all the people of Israel. Wow, if even Moses gets held accountable for his sin, we're going to get held accountable too. Because if Moses walked and talked with God, who are we? We don't walk and talk with God. So as Moses is in a role of leadership, God's going to make a 120-year-old man hike up a mountain. <laughs> he's got it. He's going to be held accountable. And then he's going to 
go up to God or be gathered to his people. Hebrews 11:13 says this culmination is not this this whole point of this isn't to be mean to Moses. What he's doing here is he's giving Moses this assurance before he dies. You're going to be with your brother. You're going to see that what you've done with your life has value and worth because you're going to see the land that I'm about to send the people into. So yes, though he's getting punished, but God's also having this amazing mercy on him at the very same time. Further, Moses doesn't get to go there physically, but God can take him himself. So notice the wording very careful. I think this is kind of cool. Verse 52, you shall shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. He doesn't get to go there. He's not going to make the trip but he does get to be there in the future. And I'll take you into the future. Mark 9, verse 2. Moses is in the Holy Land. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I think this is just an amazing moment because what were they saying? You know, you can imagine Jesus was saying something like, okay, Moses, now you get to look at the land. You didn't get to come here, but I'm going to show it to you. So God gives in that eternal life that he gives to Moses. Part of that for Moses is he gets what he always wanted. He gets to be in the land. He didn't get to walk there, but he gets to be there. And I'm sure they're talking about it. Jesus transfigured into the white. He looks more like the Jesus that Moses talked to than the Jesus that Peter, James, and John talked to, right? So that transformation is in part showing the disciples that he's the Messiah and he's going to go up to be in heaven. But in part, he's also showing himself to Moses and Elijah the way he would have showed himself to them. So he's, it, it, this, this kind of, also you got Moses and Elijah, which have guided God's people next to Peter, James, and John, which are going to guide God's people. And, and Jesus is doing the same kind of handoff and transition. Like the veterans get to say, you got it, guys. And Peter, James, and John are young men at this point, probably in their 20s, right? And and God's just like, oh, I mean, they're getting this handoff and Peter wants to go build tents. Like he's still kind of clueless at this point. But Elijah and Moses are there to inaugurate Peter, James, and John. This is a huge moment. And Moses did that for Joshua too. And he's probably looking at Peter going, yeah, that's not like Joshua at all. But John, you got a lot of Joshua in you. You're very similar personalities. And you can imagine this conversation would have just been amazing as God doesn't let these things go untouched. He makes those transitions and he helps them happen really powerful. So Moses gets to talk with Jesus, God, who he met face to face. Remember, that was the description. He talked to God face to face as he would a friend. He gets to do it one more time in the promised land and fairly close to Jerusalem. And they're up on a mountain. So I'd like to think that he could actually see the temple from where he was standing. Moses gets to look at that thing God had promised him and helped him to see. So God shows mercy even in that. So next week is a big week. We'll finish the Torah and Moses is going to give a last blessing to each of the tribes. Kind of like we saw Jacob give his blessings. Remember that? And uh, Moses is going to obey God. His last act is going to be one of obedience. And then we get to say farewell to Moses. And, and, and one of the, the titans of the Old Testament will be uh, moving on his way. Um, so next week in Jerusalem.
Oh, no, that's, that's rephrased. We'll see you next week, wherever we're going to meet. So let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we know that you are our salvation, and you are the rock of our salvation, Sur Jehovah. Um, Lord, we know that you are, um, through time and through the beginning of time, all the way through to the end, Lord, uh, your story is clear and consistent, that you will do a work, and you will uh, wait upon humanity, Lord, to um, before you bring judgment in mercy, in, in hopes that not one should perish. Um, Lord, you know that there are people that will stray away from you. They'll serve their rocks um, while we serve you. And um, Lord, we want to just be part of that remnant where we give our lives to you more than anything. Help us, Lord, to honor our parents. Help us, Lord, to put you first and love you above all things. Help us to not give our worship and our adoration to false things and idols and things that are not God. Um, Lord, help us to not covet. Help us to uh, keep your law in, in that not only do we not kill people, Lord, but we don't even call people names. We don't even think that they're foolish, Lord. We don't put ourselves above others. Lord, we don't take things that aren't ours. We don't cheat people. We don't cut corners at work. Uh, Lord, we want to live uh, ethically and responsibly. Lord, we want to have even weights. Um, Lord, we want to be responsible with what we build and how we build it, that people can be um, assured, Lord, that we'll deal with them fairly and justly. Uh, Lord, help us to not, um, uh, Lord, be given to pride, lust, and greed, and avarice, and hate, uh, and those things, Lord, which are corrupt and evil that come from the heart. Lord, help us to seek after things that are so much greater and so much more worth our time. Lord, help us to pursue purity, that purity is better than that thing I'm tempted by. Uh, and help us to pursue purity out of faith that we know that there are promises you've given us if we do that. Lord, give us eyes to see your grace and your will in our lives. Teach us your ways. Help us to remember what you've done and help us to look forward, Lord, not with fear, but to be strong and courageous, that we can be bold in our faith and confident in what we know about your word, uh, that we will not be deceived easily in those areas, Lord. Be with us and guide us and teach us. In Jesus' name, pray all these things. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.